Well, good morning, officially. Let's turn our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 18. Chapter 17 and 18, even 19, um, they really begin to give us the details of how God, as he's been judging the earth, the Christ-rejecting who have been left behind, those that have rejected Jesus Christ when he came back for his bride, the church, in Revelation 4 and 5. Beginning at chapter 6, we begin to see how God would judge those living on the earth. And towards the end of the tribulation period, the judgment of God, seven-year period on earth, um, we come to the bull judgments. The seal judgments at the beginning of the tribulation period, the trumpet judgments more at the middle, the bull judgments at the end. And the bull judgments are aimed not so much at just the people on the earth, but then as you get to the latter bull judgment, the seventh judgment, we see the focus on the Antichrist himself, the false prophet who is used as an instrument to set up the one world religious system. But the focal point is on the final world or one world system that the Antichrist sets up. And that will be, um, an, uh, it'll be the economy, so commerce, money, trade. Uh, so a one world government in the sense of the political side of it, the economical side of it. And then we'll get to chapter 19 and we'll see the judgment of his one world, well, the military that he'll garner around him. So in chapter 18 here, the focus is going to be more on the political and the economical part of the last, really, world empire or government that will be on earth during the tribulation period. Um, as we've been going through this, I've been trying to, to bring out um, God in this. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Revelation is that. It's revealing not only him, but how he is in control of all of these future events. And I know it's it's uh, just a free read through Revelation. It's just like, when I was younger and I surfed a lot, I go, this is really gnarly, man. That's how I would define it. It's, that was a joke. It's, it's really bad is the idea. And it's really difficult. And as a young teenager, I remember how Lindsay came to our church. I remember others that came and, and spoke on eschatology. And I just remember being freaked out to the point of going, I do not want to be here when that happens. And the, the older I got and the more I just began to read and and like spend time with the Lord in reading. I wasn't reading because I was in a Bible school class or being told to read by my parents or something. I was reading to really hang out with the Lord, and I began to, you know, see the future, and I realized that I'm okay as long as I'm right with Jesus. That's what I felt. I, I, no matter what I've been through in life, I was okay if I was close to him. Does that make sense? And so as the world gets worse, even now, we are okay if we are okay with Jesus. And so what really begins to get to be exciting is when you begin to, to, to understand eschatology and understand how God has dealt with the world in times of judgment. He's always rescued his people out before that. We are not seen as those subject to the wrath of God. And so I read this now not so much in fear of what I might go through as a Christian. I read this with trepidation for those that don't know Jesus, because those are the ones that will go through the tribulation if they are alive when the rapture takes place. So we come now, we're, we're kind of coming down to the end of God judging evil, not just evil people, but the source of it, the Antichrist and Satan who is behind that and, um, and his one world system. So verse 1, chapter 18, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and having great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory. So a number of angels here have been commissioned since chapter 16 with the seven bowls of wrath that they would be pouring out. And then there's other angels that God has like assigned for little specific purposes. This is another angel. And 
he is commissioned by God, and he's one that is given here, and it's notable, great authority, because his assignment has to do with, like, well, it, it, it's of great importance. This has to do with, like, the final wave of God's judgment upon evil. Remember again, when we get towards the end, we get to chapter 19, we're getting close, really close. We're going to see the whole purpose, God ushering in his kingdom and his son, okay, Jesus, who will establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. So that's going to be the kingdom of righteousness. And, and, and so before the righteous kingdom is here and established, God is going to now judge unrighteousness and evil. So we're coming to an end. It's very, very important. So whoever this angel is, man, he's like, wow, this is quite the assignment in, indeed. So, and then the, the earth, however this will play out, will be illuminated with the glory of this angel. So many scholars suggest that that's just God's way of showing he is behind all of this. And he cried, verse 2, mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen. And then repeated, is fallen. And has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So the phrase here, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. We, again, we go back to last week's study, chapter 17. We think about Babylon. We talked about what it's not referring to. It's not referring to the ancient city. It's not referring to that ancient city that was destroyed by the Persian king Cyrus around 539, or its ruins that are even located south of Baghdad today. There's a lot of speculation about Babylon being restored, and I don't want to get into all of that, but it's not talking about the, the physical city of Babylon that is in uh, Iraq today. Babylon here, again, is referring to the center of the Antichrist final world system that he will set up again and rule the entire world from and with during the tribulation period. We saw the religious component of this in chapter 17 being judged. It was defined there as mystery, uh, or, or mystery Babylon, the great, and that's the talking about the religious portion of the final one world system that the Antichrist will be overseeing. Then there's the political and the commercial and the military parts that also make up Babylon. Chapter 18, the political and the commercial are going to be judged. Chapter 19, the military. But Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen. So the repetition of this is, well, it could be speaking about the dual judgment of Babylon, the religious first, then the political and the commercial part next. It could be. Or it could be repeated for emphasis. This judgment is going to be really extreme, and it's really, really going to happen. Unquestionably, the warning would be given to people that might question if this new utopia, one world order will ever come to an end. Well, scripture has a strong emphasis here that it will. And it has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, this is beginning to give details that a lot of commentators and scholars run with regarding the why. Why, a reminder again of why God would be judging this final world system. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Christians, we are identified as members of the household of God. We're a building that is fit together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's the one true church. We who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have become that, that spiritual building. We are the dwelling place 
of God as his spirit resides in us as individuals. But the final one world system, Babylon, the, the, the religious portion, the apostate religious portion of that, the, the, the economic part of that, the political part of that, the military part of that, all that the Antichrist will set up in that one world governance will be the dwelling place of demons and a prison for every foul spirit. This is speaking about all of the fallen angels that are doing the bidding of Satan on earth. They are the demons. They're demonic spirits. So this final one world system is Satan's house. It's demonically influenced and, and empowered. It's a cage for every foul spirit. Now, Satan is often pictured as a bird in Scripture. It's kind of interesting, a fowl. Matthew 13, 4, Behold, a sower went out to sow. We know that story. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. And it's a picture of, of Satan. Like right now, as the word of God is going out, and, and our hearts are the different soils that are represented there, there's one particular soil that's pictured as a hard heart. And because that heart is hard, the seed of God's word is not received. It's not penetrating. And the enemy, Satan himself, comes and just kind of rips that off or takes that away. In Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, then the wicked one, it says there, Satan comes and snatches away that which is sown in the heart. In chapter 13 of Matthew, again, later on in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field, which indeed is the last of all the seeds. And when it was grown, it was greater than any of the, the herbs and becomes like a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so it's a picture of Christianity, the growing church, the tree there, and Satan making his way by influencing his way into the church. Just kind of a, a reference for how the en enemy, Satan himself, will work in uh, through false teaching and false teachers and um, wolves in sheep's clothing. But now the reason for Babylon's fall and judgment. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So the demonic influence of Babylon will be widespread to every nation. Understand that. Kings of the earth, that's a reference to leaders, political leaders and governmental leaders around the world are going to buy in. The merchants of the earth, Every form of commerce from production to trade to the end user around the world is going to buy in. And as we looked at Revelation chapter 13 and we saw the Antichrist rise to power and we began to talk about how he would, you know, what he would set up, we talked about a one world government. And we talked about that, that, that there would be a one world economy and there would be a currency, probably most likely a digital currency, global currency, and, and that no one would be able to buy or sell without taking his mark, the number of man, 666. And so towards the end, as, as we're looking at almost the why, the reference to why God is judging, he also puts in there or just goes, okay, and by the way, it's the whole earth. All forms of leadership are going to buy into this, from trade to political to just people of influence and people of power are going to buy into this. It's going to affect the whole earth, not just those that supply merchandise and those that provide merchandise, but those that actually purchase. Again, no buying and selling. Revelation 13, 7, unless one takes the mark of the beast. Also remember... Satan is giving the Antichrist the power and the authority to influence the world through this one world system. 
There in chapter 13 of Revelation 2, the dragon gave him his power, listen, his throne and great authority. We don't want to miss that. So that Satan's being judged here as well, not just the Antichrist, but Satan himself working behind all of this. And so by working through the Antichrist, Satan has deceived the entire world. In chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon Satan was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Remember again in Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In the Greek there, it literally reads, the whole world is in the lap of the devil. So Satan has been busy at work in this fallen world, infiltrating every part of it, including the commercial systems around the world, and that will increase to total and complete global domination during the tribulation period. So the lure for those in business will be the wealth, becoming rich, as it says here. And the luxuries, the lifestyles that come with becoming rich, and then with it, the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So the commerce component of this final one world economy earns the title of Babylon the Great for a reason. Imagine what you would have today if you merged together the most powerful, the most productive countries and cultures and economies of the world. If you just merged four of the top leading just powerhouses, economic powerhouses together. Imagine what you would have. It will be a mega metropolis of materialism, at least for a season. It will become a world intoxicated with the worship of wealth and pleasure. And we're well on our way, if you haven't noticed. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 4, that in the last days... Not just the tribulation, but in the last days, also referring to the leading up to that period. Men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It does not say that men will, be, will love pleasure more than God. It says they will love pleasure instead of God. And that's evil. And that's what God will be judging in the end. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 13, John 3, 19, and this is the judgment that, men, that the light has come into the world, speaking of, of Jesus, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The Bible warns us against a lot of things. It warns us against pleasure, like the love of pleasure. It warns us against not just money, but the love of money. In 1 Timothy 6, 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money, again, in and of itself is not evil. The love of it is. The Bible does not teach that being wealthy is a sin. Lots of godly men throughout the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Job or Solomon, were very blessed by God and became very wealthy. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When we give our hearts over to Jesus, he becomes Lord. He becomes master of our life. But whatever we give our heart over to begins to become or will become the master of our life. Those who love money, they give their hearts over to money. Money becomes the master of their life. Money and the, the, the pleasure and the materialistic things that come with that can master a person's life, just dictating what they do, where they go, even who they are. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the thing, things, plural, 
that he possesses. What is he saying? Your life is more than the abundance of your stuff. And there's some people that are living for their stuff. Amen, right? We see that. And that stuff seems to be more, the most valuable thing about them. It's a firm warning. In Luke 12, 16, later on, Jesus began to talk about a rich man, a, a farmer who thought all of his stuff was the most essential part of his life. He was saying to his soul, soul, you have many goods and laid up for you for many years. Just take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He thought that his wealth, his stuff and luxury were his sole means of peace, his sole source of contentment and security. But then later on, God says, no, you fool. This night your, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself down here on earth. It's all about that. But is not rich toward God. A bit later in chapter 12, 29, and he's like, do not seek what you should eat or drink or be anxious of, for those things. All these things, the nations of the world seek after that. The Father knows that you need these things. You guys, my followers, you seek the kingdom of God, and God will take care of all that stuff. You can see that in people's lives, and they've got that priority right. He'll take care of us and provide for us, but we need to make him and his kingdom our heart's desire and passion and the goal of our life. Amen? So the Bible does warn us against loving pleasure, loving money, and it warns us against loving the world as well. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And the reference there to the world is really referring to the evil system apart from God. Loving it speaks of giving your heart over to it, becoming devoted to it. Loving the world is, a, is, is, is the sin of allowing our appetites and, and our ambitions and even our conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values. It's desiring it with our heart and committing to it with our resources. It's like this number one aim of our life. But that's a firm warning. If you do that, if you... Anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The idea is it's just impossible to love God and the world at the same time. Love for the world is not compatible with love for God. Jesus would say, and we know that in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, else he will hold on to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then John goes on to say, you know, the, for the love... For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not of the Father. It's of the world. And that word lust there is this like this inordinate desire, like to be hot after something. The lust of the flesh is this inordinate desire that is contrary to the will of God. This includes anything that appeals to our fallen nation. The lust of the eyes you know, the, the, the eyes are the gateway to the mind. So the lust of the eyes would be ungodly pleasures that gratify the mind. It's visual interaction with things that make our heart leap over and be won over to that. It's visual interactions with things that make us think the way the world thinks and desires the things that the world Desires. And then the pride of life is just like speaking of boasting of, now I've got it. You're, you're like braggadocious about that. It's priding ourselves in the ungod, ungodly, excuse me, trappings of this world. It's unashamedly displaying things in our life that God would not want in our life and bragging about it. And then John goes, but just think about this. Follow the line of logic here, 17. But the world's passing away, <laughs> even the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the world system that is opposed to God has a built-in design flaw. What is that? It's temporary. 
It has a short shelf life. Exactly what we're learning in our text. And so this is a sobering warning for those living in the tribulation period because what they've bought into their whole life is built upon like this, what they will see is this utopia, one world governance and economy. And man, we're just firing on all eight cylinders now. And whatever that means, whatever luxury that provides, it's a warning to them that, look at all along, God has been warning to, to the destruction that that won't end, but it's a warning to them in the end, like it's not gonna last. It's, it's all coming down. And it's a warning to us today as well. Very sobering warning to all Christians today because we live in a, the world system that is apart from God and opposed to God. And that allure, that temptation, that enticement is everywhere we look. So we gotta guard our hearts. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and keep them there. We need to fill our minds with his word. That's why I'm so glad so many of us are going through the one year and we're in a Bible teaching church. He'll keep us on the right path, his path. Amen? Four and five. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Another voice here, many scholars believe this is God speaking himself. In all ages, God has called his people to separate themselves from that which is worldly or anti-God. Genesis 12, God called Abraham to get out of his country to the land of promise. When God separated his people from Egypt, he warned the Israelites not to go back. When God took Lot and his family out of Sodom, he warned them not even to look back. Paul says to believers in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17, we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. 17, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't be touching what is unclean and I will receive you. This same call will come from heaven to those who received Jesus during the tribulation period. And John gives us two sobering reasons why God's people need to stay away and separate themselves from Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Number one, lest you share in her sins. Yes, you can join fellowship or partnership with them. Be careful. Come out. Stay away from Babylon so that you do not begin to fit in or buy in or adapt and become one of them. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The, the J.B. Phillips translation of that verse is, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and it meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. What a rich translation. Secondly, the warning, lest you receive her plagues. So number one, lest you just buy in and begin to share in her sins, but lest you now face the judgment that comes with that. What a warning. Loving the world leads to being conformed to the world, which leads to being condemned with the world. So verse six, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay to her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself 
and live luxuriously. In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, another, this is why I'm judging. I sit as queen, she says in her heart, and am no widow and will not see sorrow. God has been patient with this final act of judgment for long enough. Now it's time. God will render or give to her as she has rendered or given to you and repay her double according to her works. God's judgment is proportionate. It's appropriate when you look at the why he is judging Babylon. Again, number one, he is judging it because it's influenced by demons in every foul spirit. Number two, he is judging it because it seduced the nations into worshiping the system and the, the part of it, the, the Antichrist himself, but also pleasure that they would gain from the, the economy. Number three, he's judging it because of pride. She glorified herself. She says in her heart, I sit as queen. She saw herself as a queen that would never be dethroned. God says, oh yeah? Verse eight, therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges. So that final world empire, that final one world government that the Antichrist will set up, the Antichrist himself and all the leadership and all of those that just bow down to all of that, they're going to think, this will never end. But in one day, in one day, she will exchange her joys for sorrow and her riches for famine. Sometimes God's judgment, it takes time. It happens over time. Other times it's like swift and there's like no delay, much like with King Nebuchadnezzar back in the book of Daniel in chapter 4, verses 29 through 30. As he was walking around the palace there in ancient Babylon, he said this, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Walking around, sticking his chest out, going, I've done all of this. But while the word was still in his mouth, a voice from heaven, God speaks and says, King Nebuchadnezzar, hold on, hold on. The kingdom's now departed from you. They're gonna drive you out. You're gonna be hanging out with beasts in the field. You're gonna eat grass like oxen. And seven times, seven years, this, this is going to be a, a very serious judgment of God poured out upon this man. And it says, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning that king. He was driven from men at the gate. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles. The guy just looked freakish, okay? <laughs> Feathers, his nails. I mean, if you saw King Nebuchadnezzar once God judged him, you're like, I want nothing to do with that. And it was instant. And God could judge that way. Thank God he would look up, recognize God, and God would turn that judgment around. But Proverbs 16, 18 for us. Pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. Church, ask the Lord on a regular basis to keep you humble. Okay? Just wherever you're at, as your, as your success can bring pride. Just more knowledge can bring pride. Just experience in life can bring pride. There's a lot of things that can feed pride. And all of a sudden, we have this proud kind of view of ourself and proud view of maybe towards people who aren't as happening as us. Even as the church, the church can grow proud and no longer look at the world 
through the lens of God's word or with the heart of God. And all of a sudden, we're just so right and have it all together and they're so wrong and don't have it together. We start talking about the world like they're our enemies rather than being victims of the enemies just like we were before Jesus graciously saved us. Ask the Lord to keep you humble. If you stay in his word, how many of you guys know that the word of God will humble you if you really open up your hearts? It just humbles you. It's like, whoa, but by the grace of God, there go I. I just think it's an important side, side note for all of us here just to, to, to ask the Lord to keep us humble. And pray for our church. The Lord keep us as the body of Christ humble. In one day, in one day, the entire economic empire of the Antichrist, one world government, collapses. Sometimes we walk around thinking our little world, we got it together as an individual, as a Christian. And God could say, oh yeah? How many of you have ever had God like quickly get your attention? Raise your hand. All right. You can, you can tell by listening to a Christian if they're in tune with God. Just listen to them. The way they talk about God, there's an awe there. There's a reverence there. There's a fear there. The way they talk about the bride of Christ. There's, there's, there's when, when someone has the freedom to talk like they're more special, they're more, more unique, that they've got all the answers, they're right and everyone else is wrong, they're not in tune with God. That's, that's, not a, that's not a Christian that is in tune with God. A Christian that is in tune with God, you'll hear them talk about God with, with they are the clay, he is the potter. They will speak about God and their words will be like marinated by grace, God's grace. They will speak about the body of Christ with grace. And there's a lot of imperfections in the body of Christ. There's a lot of things we can pick apart and point fingers at and, 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 and just, just make sure that you're in line with the heart of God. Why am I saying this? Because I believe we are living in the last days. And I believe that God is looking for people to use. And I believe that, that he's looking for, excuse me, humble, pliable hearts that are just broken over someone that's not right with God, whether they're saved or they're not saved. That we'd be just broken over that. We'd be humble and, and loving and gracious and compassionate and really wanting to kind of work through relationally work through things with people to where we all are right with God. These are not the days to be playing some kind of game like God might not be coming back soon game. I believe that Jesus is coming back soon. I believe we should live our lives that way. Don't ever think that God can't bring you down in one hour. You could go to your next doctor's appointment and you're like, I can't believe I just heard that. You could walk into your job tomorrow. You never know what can happen to our economy. You never know. You don't know. Don't live your life as if, like the queen who says her throne will always be, or the king who says his throne will always be. That's a word from the Lord. That's what we're learning right here. Amen? All right. So, I want you to think about this. What if the entire world as you know it, the world as you know it right now, were to suddenly collapse? We always talk about the, the leading economies. Well, California's, you know, it's, it's rated as one of the largest economies in the world. And then another state, and then maybe another nation. And, and we're like, oh, wow, that's, that's a powerful thing. What if the whole world as we know it were to suddenly collapse? You know what that means? 
That means our personal world will be affected. What if all currency just collapsed? Which means everything in your wallet, everything in your bank would be instantly worthless. Fuel and power sources would be turned off. Wi-Fi, cable, done. Telecommunications, done. You go to turn on your, like, the cable guy you followed for the last five years, he's done. There's no connection. And I don't care what your favorite go-to is. Make sure the Word of God is your favorite go-to, by the way. What if the stock market just done? Your 401k, done. Everything that brought you comfort and pleasure was done. Listen, forever. That's the reality they're going to be faced with in one hour. Done. This is very frightening because so much of our lives depends on the world continuing just the way it is. But there's coming a day where that is no mas. It's no more. Yes. If you're living for the kingdom, your world never ends. Your king will always be enthroned. Amen? If you're living for this world, we got to be honest. That king's going down, and then his throne's going down, up in smoke in one hour. This shows the certainty of God's judgment. The kings of the earth, verse 9, i got to fly through this, who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will keep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment saying, alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour judgment has come. Kings of the earth are mentioned here first because they will be the ones affected the most as the world leaders. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment. They don't, they don't want to be judged with the, the very world order that they helped develop. But they have to come, and they will come to realize it's over, saying, alas, alas, the mighty city, the great city, in one hour, judgment has come. Their world fixated on idolatrous, luxurious living for pleasure will come to an end. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys the merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, expensive woods, every kind of, of, of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, and the spices, cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. And the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So now... Not just the world leader, but the businessman. For the last three and a half years, it's been an opportunity of a lifetime. They thought they have won the lotto, all of the success and all the luxury that it brought, everything that Babylon afforded them, or so they thought, but in one hour, gone. Their varied global enterprises have collapsed. All of their, their products, you could go through it again, but all of them, all the textiles and woods and even the metals and the vehicles and the modes of operation, all, this, all of it gone. And it says, and bodies and souls of men. Could be referring to their customers or some scholars believe it's referring to human trafficking. They realize that instantly their customers are gone. Their prophets are gone, <clears throat> and they stand at a distance for fear 
of torment, weeping and wailing. For in one hour, 17, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance as well. They cried out the same. So not just the the businessmen, the people, the shipmasters and the sailors, anything that has to do with the shipping industry completely shut down. What's the result? Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and they cried out weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. So rejoice over her, O heaven. Here's heaven's perspective. And you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. As God is judging Babylon, the final one world system, down here on earth there's weeping and wailing. In heaven, from heaven's perspective, very different. There is rejoicing because God has justifiably and finally judged evil and unrighteousness in order again to bring in his kingdom of righteousness. How important it is that God's people look at events from God's point of view. Then a mighty angel took up a stone in 21 like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, thus with Violence, the great city Babylon, shall be thrown down and shall be found, shall not be found anywhere. We know another person, Jesus, who talked about a millstone and whoever causes one of his little ones, an innocent follower of his, to sin. It'd be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck and he was thrown into the deepest sea. So the final world system is going to cause masses of people to sin. And so a great judgment is coming. To them. What does it say, 22? The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters shall not be heard anymore. No more music. No more concerts. No more entertainment. No more celebrations. No craftsmen, 22, of any craft. So, you know, no more work. No more commerce. It's all been terminated. 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. No more celebrations, no more weddings, no more parties, etc. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So one more like reason why God is judging. It's because of what they did to the people of God, whether it's Jews or the believers who put their faith in Jesus during the tribulation period, those martyrs, many, many will be put to death for their faith. Another reason why God is so intense with this final judgment. So God's judgment on evil and those that practice is certain. From verses 21 to 24, six times we see the word anymore as a reference to God judging the world. And this teaches us how foolish it would be to fix our hope on this world or the things of this world or anything. 1 John 2, 17, again, we read it. The world is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen? Let's all stand. So at this point in our study, the religious system of the one world empire, the Antichrist sets up a one world system, the religious part, judged. The political part, the economical part, judged. It is absolute. It's gone. And so the Antichrist is going to go, well, I still have one more, you know, card to play here. And he's going to try and rally together military might 
to oppose and to, to gain control or to keep control. And, 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 and Jesus is going to have something to say about that in chapter 19. It's going to be excited. So, you know, I, I just think it's, it's important to just leave this morning with that, that honest comp- contemplation and, and take it home and really spend some time with the Lord and just like, what am I most living for? I mean, really. I'm going to just say, okay, we're born again. But there are two kingdoms. The book of Revelation, as someone has rightfully said, are greatly about two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's kingdom, which we are living in, in this age. And there's a lure to it. There's an attraction to it. There's an ability to fall into the trappings, to get caught up in it, to give our heart over to it. And just be honest. Where do my my passions lie? What am I passionate about? And and, and really think through that and and, and be honest before the Lord. And maybe even have a good conversation with the Lord, open his word and say, Lord, you know, talk to me today and, and show me maybe, not maybe, show me. The maybe is almost like, well, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm struggling. Show me where, where, where am I aiming my eyes that are that gateway to my mind, my heart? Where am I fixating that to where, to where the world and the lure of the world and the trappings of the world are starting to grab me and form like the decisions I make and, then, and who I am and, and rather than you? And, and talk to him about that. And, and be okay with his answer. Be okay with his conviction. Be okay with his prodding, his redirection. And he's, he's your father. He loves you. And he loves me. And he wants us to be in line with him and humbly following him. Folks, that's where true stability for the soul is found. How many of you guys know that this world is passing away? It's shaky ground. If you're fixated on that, you're just like, Ah, I feel anxious. I don't, I don't feel stable. Okay, well, you're, you're getting rooted in something that will never give your soul stability. So just relax. That's not to say you shouldn't be a good steward. It's not to say that a home ownership is bad. It's not to say that investments are bad. It's not to say that if God is blessing you and you've been successful, that that is bad. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when you give your heart over to that. You love those things, and it becomes the passion and the aim and the focus of your heart rather than God. So, Father, help us. And may we embrace any realignment you would have for us, we ask. And anyone here that doesn't know you, we pray, or even online, that right now they would just honestly cry out to you and admit that. They don't know you and ask you to come into their life and to become their personal Lord and Savior right now. We love you, Lord. Continue to take care of of your bride until you come back for us soon. Hurry up, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.